Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Alex, and I'm a first-year student studying engineering and finance. Today, we're going to be continuing our series of Romans with Chapter 7, so please feel free to follow along with me. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, when the commandment came, sin sprayed to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Well, I've got a question for you. How do you make people good? I've got two daughters, an eight-year-old and a three-month-old, uh, and so this is a live question for me. How do I help them to be good? How do I produce good people from them? 
How do I get them to grow in goodness? Uh, And governments have the same question, don't they? How can they make their citizens good? Because citizens who are honest and gentle and good, well, they're great. They're much better than having citizens who are dishonest and violent and bad because they're expensive and they make people's lives difficult. More personally, though, how do you make yourself good? Perhaps you recognise that you're a bit of a gossip and you want to stop. Or you've been looking at porn and you know that it's not good and you want to stop, but you keep getting drawn back to it. Or you know that you're actually inclined to be lazy or mean or selfish or you find yourself sort of repeatedly lying to save yourself from embarrassment. How do you actually make yourself good? How do you get people to be good? Uh, But it's worth noticing the assumption behind the question, isn't it? That if you're asking how do you get people to be good, you're assuming that they're not already. And if that's your assumption, you're absolutely right. (laughs) We're not good. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul actually declares that the wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of people. And he goes on to say that uh, Gentiles have suppressed the truth about God, that he's the creator, and they've ended up worshipping creation instead. They've done things that they, in their own consciences, know are wrong. And he says Jews are no better, because although they have God's law, they haven't kept it. And so he concludes in chapter 3, verse 12, that there's no one who does good, not even one. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be, but he is saying that none of us are as good as we should be. But the good news is that while God is angry at us for our sin, he still loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sin in our place, taking God's anger on himself so that we didn't have to. And so Paul explains that in spite of our sin. God can declare us righteous, not guilty, because the penalty has already been paid. We can be right with God, not by trying to be good enough, because we always fail at that, but purely as a gift from God that we receive simply by trusting in Jesus and his death for us. Or, if you want to put it in theological language, God justifies us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which is great news. I'm brought into God's family. I'm made one of his people. I have relationship with him. I'm right with God. But then how do you get people to be good? I mean, imagine if the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, uh, decides that he's going to be gracious and he declares that all prisoners in Australia are free to go. The prisons are emptied. Uh, They're free to go home. What's more, he promises that they will never be re-arrested. Would you sleep well tonight? I don't think I would. But why? Well, I think it's because although they've been justified, they've been declared right with the government, well, I've actually got no confidence that they've been changed. I've got no confidence that they have become good people. In fact, if the prisoners are all going to be set free, 
I, at the very least, want them to be re-arrested if they do something wrong, if they break the law. And so maybe that's how justification works with God, that uh, he gives me the offer of his son, Jesus. I accept that. I'm brought into his family. So I'm in purely by grace. But then maybe I have to stay in by works. Like I've got to keep the law from that point on. Make sure you don't sin again or else God will be angry at you all over again. Which seems to make sense, but Paul says, no, that's not actually how it works. Chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Literally, grace hyperabounded. So the more you sin, it doesn't mean you sort of go into God's black books. No, it just means that God shows more grace towards you. He forgives even more. So how do you get people to be good if they're always getting forgiven if they trust in Jesus? I mean, if God just keeps showing us grace every time that we sin, then what's to stop us running amok? I mean, why not? doesn't matter what you do. You can't get re-arrested. You won't be punished for it. Not by God, anyway. So why not just sin it up? Paul sort of spent chapter 6 answering that question and his point is that we've died with Christ to that old way of life, that life of ungodliness and unrighteousness and we've been raised with Christ from that life of death to live a new life, alive to God. We actually belong to God now so we live for him, not for our old master sin. Our old life as slaves of sin, that led to death but our new life as slaves of God leads to holiness and eternal life. But you might still think, but, but how do you still make people good? Now, surely the way to make them good is to give them rules, is to give them laws. I mean, after all, that's what the government does, isn't it? It's got all these different laws that you're supposed to keep. And more to the point, isn't that actually what God did with Israel? He gave them the law. Yes, he saved them by grace. He, he chose Abraham and his descendants for no reason to do with Abraham and his descendants, just purely by grace. He saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out to Mount Sinai and he gave them the law through Moses to get them to be good, right? So, yeah, sure, Paul, I can see how you're in by grace, but surely you've got to stay in by good works, by keeping the law. And Paul says, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that the law is how you get people to be good. In fact, I'm saying exactly the opposite. He said it back in chapter 5, verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might decrease. No, he says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. We're already in rebellion against God before he ever gave the law of Moses, but the law doesn't decrease the sin. It increases the trespass. You think, why on earth would God do that? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. But it's there again in 6.14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law. You are not under the law but under grace. 
You think, but how can that possibly be? How can you just ditch the law? Well, in the first part of chapter 7, Paul flips that question around and he asks, well, how could you possibly continue under it? Have a look at chapter 7, verse 1 with me. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? And so he takes as an example the seventh commandment, the seventh of the ten commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And he explains how it works. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if a husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. You see what he's saying? He's saying the law against adultery, well, that's a good law. But when her husband dies, the wife is actually released from it. She's free to marry another guy without being guilty of adultery. I mean, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? I think we all get that. But why? Why is she free to marry another guy? Is it because God decided that the law against adultery was bad? He changed his mind? No, not at all. It's just that this particular death has changed the situation. So the law against adultery just no longer applies. But as Paul goes on to say, what happens to the law against adultery when your husband or your wife dies is actually what's happened to the whole law when Christ died. It's not that the law was bad. It's just that Christ's death has changed the situation. So it no longer applies. You can see it there in verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What does he mean? Well, he means that if you're united to Christ in death, that is, you're trusting in his death to pay for your sins, then you're actually released from the law of Moses. How? Well, quite simple, actually. If all my sins, past, present and future, are paid for by Jesus' death, then what power does the law have over me? Can it condemn me? No, my sins are paid for. Can it threaten me? Can it say to me, unless you keep this command, God will kick you out of his family? No. Why not? Well, because Jesus has died. And in his death, he's paid for all my sin, past, present and future, if I'm trusting in him. Does that mean that the law was bad? No, he says. It's just that Christ's death has changed the situation. So the law no longer applies. It can't possibly apply if Christ has died for your sin. But if the law is not bad, then why would God want to release me from it? Well, Paul says at the end of verse 4 that God did it so we could bear fruit for him. That is, we could do good works. 
But you think, surely the law would push me to do good works. It says, here's all the things that you've got to do and here's all the bad things that you're not to do. Surely the law would push me to do good works. Well, Paul says, no, actually. The law is good. It outlines a good and godly way of life, but it's actually powerless to produce the godliness that it outlines. In fact, worse than that, he says, it actually exacerbates my ungodliness. You see it there in verse 5? For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. When Paul talks about the flesh, he just means humans without the Holy Spirit. What are we without the Holy Spirit? We're flesh. And he says, when we were in that domain, well, far from suppressing sin, the law actually aroused it. The law didn't make us sin less, it made us sin more. But now, he says in verse 6, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, the written code, the law of Moses, it always sits outside me and it is therefore incapable of changing my heart. In fact, all it does is arouse my innate sinfulness. But now, says Paul, united to Christ, I'm no longer under the power of sin and the law. I'm under the power of the Holy Spirit, who actually brings a whole new way of serving God, who is capable of changing me on the inside. A whole new way of serving God that's not about following the written code, but about living the good life that the law pointed towards but could never produce. Paul's actually been so negative about the law in Romans that uh, he imagines a question that might come up in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And his response is, no, no way, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul's quoting the 10th of the Ten Commandments here uh, about coveting, longing to possess what belongs to someone else. And when you stop and think about it, it's actually a very unusual command. The other nine commands are really about behaviour. You you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false testimony, that kind of thing. They're about behaviour, but you shall not covet. Well, it's actually about your desires, isn't it? In fact, it's a useless command to have in a legal code. You shall not covet isn't under Australian law. It's not under any government's law that I know of. Why? Well, because it's completely unenforceable. It's all in your head. The government can know if I commit murder or adultery or if I bear false testimony, but who other than God can know if I'm coveting? It's a useless command to have in a legal code. So why is it there? Was God just having an off day? Did he not sort of think through it properly? Didn't realise that it wasn't enforceable? 
No, God knew exactly what he was doing when he put it there. As Paul says in verse 7, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, did he literally not know what covet meant? Like, he was, this is a word I haven't come across before, I need my dictionary. No, the law assumes that you know what coveting means. It doesn't explain it. It just says, you shall not do it. What Paul means is that although he knew what coveting means, he didn't really know what coveting means before the commandment came. See, we like to think, oh yes, you know, I, I admit I do covet things from time to time, but I could stop if I wanted to. But when the law comes along and it says, you shall not covet, well, I find that actually very far from stopping coveting, something very different happens in me. Something that's very disturbing. You can see it there in verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. See, UWA used to have a sign up at the Reed Library. I'm not sure if it's still there, uh, down in the sort of outside area down the bottom, that warned against trying to jump the moat. Uh, Is it still there? It's still there, yeah. Um, Now, to be honest, I'd never actually thought about jumping the moat before I saw that sign. (laughs) It never occurred to me not to just sort of walk around through the library to get out onto the grass. I mean, that way I'm not going to get wet, I'm not going to land on an unsuspecting duck. But as soon as I saw the sign saying, don't do it, suddenly I started thinking of ways that I might be able to. (laughs) And I thought, how fast would I have to be running to actually be able to jump? Or could I just sort of do it from a standing start? And where would I have to put my foot to get right over it? Could I do it? Never occurred to me to uh, jump the moat before, but now having seen that sign, I really want to do it. And Paul's saying, that's what the law does. That's what it does to sinful people. The law sounds like it ought to be a lethal dose of potassium to the heart of sin, but it turns out to be a shot of adrenaline. The law doesn't make sin go, it makes it go, woo. (laughs) Suddenly, the law uh, causes sin to spring to life. Instead of bringing me to life and killing sin, the law brings sin to life and kills me. Paul's not saying that he had no sin before he came across the law, but the law revs it up. So does that mean that the law itself is bad? No, not at all, says Paul. The law is fantastic. Not because it saves me from my sin. It doesn't. It can't. But because it reveals how deep my sin actually goes. shows me that my sin is not me just sort of occasionally doing the wrong thing and I could stop if I chose to. No, it shows me that sin is much worse than that. It's something inside me. It's something twisting me and warping me. Something that holds me prisoner. 
I like to think that I'm free to do whatever I want. That, you know, I can stop coveting if I want to. But the Lord does me a great service by showing me that I'm fooling myself. So then, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So did the law become death to me, Paul asks in verse 13. By no means. Saying, I was already dead in my sin. Sin was at work in me long before the law came. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The law shows up sin for what it really is. Not just me occasionally choosing to do the wrong thing, but a malevolent, hostile power that's at work within me. See, sin is kind of like being addicted to meth. If you're addicted to meth, you may like to think that you're in control, but actually there's something inside you controlling you, enslaving you, making you do things that in your right mind you would never dream of doing. As Paul says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, uh, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. If I say, I don't want to covet, I don't want to desire the things that other people have, well, then I'm agreeing that the law is good. But when I find myself coveting, even though I don't want to, I realise I've got a problem. Why am I coveting? Well, because sin is living in me. I've been invaded by some kind of hostile force, and it's the hostile force that is actually calling the shots. He says it again in verses 18 to 20. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it. But it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? It's like being addicted to meth. I might tell myself that I'm in control, but I actually end up doing all sorts of things that I don't want to do. I get violent. I steal stuff. I yell at my family. I make their lives miserable. I don't want to be a horrible person, but I am. And I'm responsible for it. After all, I'm the one who's doing it. But I would be quite a different person if I wasn't a slave to meth, wouldn't I? And you'd be quite a different person if you weren't a slave to sin. So what's the solution? How do you get a meth addict to be good? Do you give them more laws? Do you make posters and stick them up in their bedroom saying you shall not steal? You shall not be violent? You shall not make your family's life a misery? No, of course not. Law isn't going to help. In fact, if anything, it's probably just going to enrage them. What you need to do is get them off the meth. And then the bad behaviour starts to go away. 
In fact, if they're off the meth, you probably don't even need to tell them you shall not steal cars, you shall not punch random strangers, because they never dream of doing it in the first place. I mean, I presume you're not walking around thinking, do not steal cars, do not steal cars, do not steal cars. No, you don't need a law against stealing cars. You weren't going to do it in the first place. So how do you deal with sin? Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Well, Paul doesn't say, thanks be to God who delivers me through the law. No. The law doesn't stop sin, it only exacerbates it. Law equals death. What we need is not the law, but we need our sin to be paid for so that we're no longer facing punishment. We need to be freed from the law so it no longer arouses our sinfulness. And we need the direction of our hearts to be changed so that instead of sin bending us away from God in rebellion, we're bent back towards him. How can we do that? Well, we can't. But God can. And he does. He delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers us from his wrath at our sin. He delivers us from the power of the law by forgiveness. And he delivers us from the power of sin so that we increasingly love him and live for him instead of living for sin. He does it by his spirit who unites us to Christ and changes our hearts so that we believe the gospel and love Jesus and love God. That's actually how you get people to be good. Not by giving them laws, but by Jesus. Knowing Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So next week we're going to have a look at what it means to no longer be a slave to sin, but be to set but to be set free through Christ to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not under law, but under the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. That we are no longer uh, slaves to sin and no longer under the law, but actually set free to live the good life that the law pointed us towards but couldn't produce. Father, help us to delight in Jesus and to live for him. Amen.